Good evening, everyone. <laughs> My name is Ali. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, I'm married to the amazing Meg. You know that you've qualified as a preacher when you can say that. You have to start the sermon uh, hyping up your wife. So it's very cool. We've just passed three months. We're super stoked. Uh, I, I work at a company in town called OfferZen. We work with um, developers, which is super exciting. And I'm really happy to be with you guys today. Uh, I, I think it is a gift whether you're joining us online or in person, uh, to have this time at the start of the week to set our hearts and our minds on Christ, uh, particularly at the end of this tumultuous and shocking week. You know, our country's exploded into chaos in many ways, and it's really easy to feel overwhelmed, perhaps hopeless in the face of events like this. And so now, as much as possible, I really would remind us that we have a God who is powerful, and who's in control. We have a God who's never taken aback, never on the back foot, never defeated. We serve a sovereign God who rules over all things. And so while there is enough going on this week to distress all of us for weeks, I would encourage us all now to take a deep breath. Literally, like, fill your lungs. Let God's presence fill us as we gather around a TV, laptop screen, here in person. We're going to sit under God's word. He's faithful to us. He loves us. He's ready to speak to us this morning through the text or this evening. So we're going to quieten ourselves and perhaps let's just pray as we start. Father, we're so grateful that you speak to us today through your word. We are so grateful that you're not a quiet God, but you speak to us daily, loudly, clearly through your word. Would you speak to us tonight, God? Amen. So for the sake of keeping this fresh, let's read the text again. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. So they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. The Herodians were supporters of Herod, the king of Judah, who was buddies with the Roman Empire, not a popular chap. So they sent him the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And that's God's word to us today. So this evening we're looking at a few main things. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to see a trap laid for Jesus. Then we're going to look at what it means to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Then we're going to look at what it means to render to God what is God's. Okay, sound good? So the passage begins with the Pharisees following up on the grudge that has been building over the last few chapters. At the beginning of chapter 12, right before this, Jesus has told the parable of the tenants. Okay, that's a story of a master who leaves his vineyard to tenants, who, although the master sends them his servants and eventually his son to fetch his share of the produce, the tenants kill them all. Okay, and so the master, in his vengeance, comes against the tenants and kills them all and then gives the vineyard to others who are going to be faithful with it. And the Pharisees now have perceived that Jesus has told this parable against them, okay, that the Pharisees and their Jewish forefathers 
are the murderous, rebellious tenants who've rebelled against the master of the vineyard, that's God, and that God's wrath is the inevitable fate waiting for them. And this cuts them deeply because they obviously uphold themselves as these religious teachers and examples of holiness, you know, the paragon of godly perfection amongst the Jewish people, but Jesus doesn't see them that way. And so they leave that hearing furious, looking to arrest him, but they can't because they're afraid that if they do, the people will rebel against them because the people seem to believe Jesus' message to some degree. So while they can't arrest him outright, they set a trap okay, with word games, hoping that he makes some kind of slip that they can use to convict him. And so verse 13 begins with the Pharisees and the Herodians coming to Jesus with a problem that seems like a catch-22. So they pose this problem that seems like no matter how Jesus answers it, he's caught saying something damning that they're going to use to accuse him and ultimately be rid of him. And the deadly subject that they use to trap Jesus is taxes. Okay, so they set him up so well. They start this exchange by coming and buttering him up. So they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the word of God. Isn't that schmoozing? They just start with compliments, hey? And you can almost hear like the, the sickly sweet tone of their voice. But they're also setting him up. Okay, they're clever guys. They box him in on all sides by saying, essentially, if you truly teach God's way, you're going to have an opinion on this subject. And if you don't care about anyone else's opinion, you should be happy to share that opinion with us. So they're trying to guarantee that Jesus answers them, you know, with some clever wordplay. So what's the situation then? What's the issue that they're trying to trap him with? Well, it's, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, so that's all. One line, it's a cracker. It is a catch-22 pretty much. Okay, and here's why. So tax was a seriously contentious issue in the Roman Empire, and Israel was no exception. Rome was this glorious conquering power. The emperor Pompey marched into Jerusalem in 63 BC, and so at the point of this story, Israel has been under the rule of Rome for close to 100 years. And the Romans were paid their due with this oppressive taxation scheme in many parts of their empire. In fact, if you've been in church for a while, you may have heard of the Jewish tax collectors, you know, guys like Zacchaeus, Jews who extorted these taxes for the Romans from their own countrymen, keeping anything that they managed to squeeze out over and above the tax requirement. So tax, as has often been the case throughout history, it was a loaded topic, okay? So if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then it's as if he's endorsing this oppressive, conquering, foreign Roman government ruling over the Jewish people. By saying that they should pay their taxes, he's compromising his devotion to God, surely, because he's choosing the Roman government over the autonomy of God's people, you know, to be free. So he's going to ruin himself before his followers. And if Jesus says no, don't pay your taxes, then it's as if he's inciting rebellion against the Roman Empire. Okay, that's what tax evasion equated to in the Roman Empire, flat-out rebellion. Nowadays, SARS comes for you and asks questions. Then, dead. Okay, so yes, pay your taxes, Jesus is finished. No, don't pay your taxes, Jesus is finished. Okay, it's game on. 
So what does Jesus do? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So isn't that an interesting start, knowing their hypocrisy? Okay, he knows they're not asking because they genuinely want to answer for themselves. Okay, they're not genuinely curious. They just want to know which reason to be arrested he's going to pick. And I love how Jesus responds to He's like, why are you testing me? Just give me a coin. Give it. Just like someone, give me a coin. And then he says, and they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's like the most simple object lesson of all time if you just look at Jesus' words, right? It's like, whose face is this? Who's, uh, Caesar. Yeah, Caesar, good, okay. So then who does it belong to? Also Caesar. Right, okay, so give it to him. And I love how simple that is, literally just one sentence. And Jesus answers that question by saying, well, if it's Caesar's image on the coin, it belongs to him. So pay up. Give it to him then. Jesus is saying that the image equals the ownership. Okay, that's my, that's my equation. The image equals the ownership. If it's his image on the coin, then the coin is his. That's why Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So do you notice how he also doesn't get into the details of whether the government is worthy of receiving tax? He doesn't touch on whether they're spending it well, whether they have a right to rule over the people, whether they're doing with it what they say they will. He only says, if you're under the rule of Caesar, you pay your taxes to Caesar. And remember, it's not like these guys love the Roman Empire either. There were incredibly high levels of tension throughout the region, as this foreign power had conquered and consolidated power in the, in the area. And that's going to culminate 35 years later with the siege and sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Jewish people are no fans of the Romans. And so if we're just talking about taxes now, which I don't think we are, but if we are only talking about taxes now, then I think Jesus would say exactly the same thing to you and me today. If we're under the rule of the South African government, we pay our taxes. We're submissive people as Christ follows. There's no dodging here. It's not about whether we like what they're doing. It's not about whether we approve of things like service delivery or whether we're aware of the corruption rate. Jesus' message to us as Christ followers is pay your taxes. That's all. If you owe it, pay it. Now, I would say that this passage is not primarily about tax or the relationship between church and state, but it touches on it in only a few words. And it's worth us saying now that that relationship is complicated and we won't be able to stretch it all out in the, in the course of one sermon unless we deviate from what this passage really is about. But... Let me suggest one thing as to why we find tax so difficult, and we are going to touch on it a little bit later. But for the time being, let me just say that I think it's primarily because we see tax as a subscription to the government that we pay primarily when we align with them. Where the trust or faith between us and the government breaks down, we turn into begrudging taxpayers. You know, and, and in extreme cases, we withhold that. And that's the common story throughout history. As long as there has been tax, there has been tax evasion. And so I think that there's a deeper level to look at this from. We're going to get there. But for the moment, I think it's worth noting that even when dealing with a government who was oppressive, brutal, 
totalitarian. Jesus did not go down the line of subscription to the government, tax equals support for the government kind of thinking. He just said to his listeners, you should submit to your government and pay your taxes. And I find that really interesting and quite challenging for us in 21st century South Africa. But more on that in a little bit. Now, I do think there's something else going on here. Jesus at the end says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Right? So if the coin is Caesar's, then what is God's? So it's worth noting that Jesus is not saying that the tax you pay to Caesar does not belong to God. Okay? Everything is God's. There's no break between this is what the government has authority over, this is what God has authority over, this is what I give to the government, this is what I give to God. That's not where the text is going. And along those lines, I find it impossible to read here that Jesus is saying that a portion of your money goes to God and a portion of your money goes to Caesar. Like you pay a Caesar tax, you know, a government tax, you pay a God tax. Now, it may not surprise you to hear that many prosperity gospel preachers have used this text to say exactly that, and they've extorted millions out of people through a manipulation of this text. You don't have a God tax to pay. That is not what this text is saying. I've got two reasons. Okay, so firstly, you get to give your money away. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Paul says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, so if you give to Bosch as your home church, or you give to a charity that you love, or to friends or family in need, then give from your heart with joy and not reluctance, because God hates a sulky giver. There's no tax that Jesus or any apostle puts on his people in the New Testament. Rather, the attitude of giving is like that of Zacchaeus, who upon receiving Jesus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Okay, so giving's of that nature. It's to be free and joyful and grateful and generous. And the other reason, reason two, Uh, is that this text would make no sense if Jesus was talking about money owed to God. Okay, so remember, he said that the tax was owed to Caesar because it was Caesar's face or image on the coin. Okay, so if your image is on the coin, it belongs to you, right? Image equals ownership. Okay, that's what I'm going with tonight. So then how does it follow that that coin should also be paid to God? Does that make sense? How does it follow then if image equals ownership? From Jesus' line of thinking, it wouldn't. It doesn't follow. So what is God? What do you render to God? Jesus' whole argument centers around image and ownership. So we render to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image, and it follows in that we render to God that which bears God's image, okay, which is you. You bear the image of God. In Genesis 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. He created us in his image. You and I bear his image in the same way that that coin bears the image of Caesar, okay? 
And so it follows then that if you render to God that which bears God's image, then what Jesus is implying in this story is that we are to render our very selves, our whole being to God. The thing that we offer to God is our very selves. Why? Because like the coin, if his image is on us, then we're owed to him. Does that make sense? And so where the Pharisees are asking, what do I do with this denarius? Jesus is saying, no, no, the question is, what do you do with all your life? You know, you're asking me a question about this particular aspect of your life, and Jesus zooms way out and starts speaking about how they should live their entire lives. And I find that we do, and maybe I'll speak for myself, I do the same thing as the Pharisees in the story. I have certain aspects of my life that I care very deeply about, whether it reflects God or not. And I have other aspects that I don't really care about. So we prioritize certain aspects of our life as most important to glorify God in. And we have other areas that we just don't think are that important. And we end up segmenting our holiness. You know, we create this hierarchy of the different aspects of our lives. So this is what I mean. These are some examples of some areas of perhaps mismatched priority. We think things like, it's very important for me to give money to help the homeless, but it's not as important for me to not gossip about people. It's very important for me to not get drunk with my mates. It's not as important if I push the boundaries with my girlfriend. It's very important for me not to lie, but it's not that important for me to not swear. It's very important for me to ask my digs mates about their lives and their faith. It's not that important for me to share my food with them and do their dishes. It's very important for me to go to church, but it's not that important for me to pray and read my Bible every day. Do you see how we end up having these like hierarchies of what we think is important? And I have my own hierarchy, and Rich has his own hierarchy, and Meg has her own hierarchy. Do you see how we have our own ranking of the areas of our lives that we think God cares about the most? Do you see how although the Bible speaks to every single one of the examples that I've just given, we make up our own priority list, and that's different from everyone else's. And we're just like the Pharisees, asking, so what do we do about this particular aspect of our lives? You know? And then what about this one? And what about this one? And it goes on and on. We go around life like lopsided Christians, each of us lopsided in our own way as we try to bring specific and limited areas of our life into scrutiny. We don't ask questions about our whole lives. And what is really going on here what really makes bringing all of our lives to God and not just a part of it so hard to do is that we don't think we're owed to anyone. Honestly, I think the reason this is such a big struggle for us is that we each think, I am still my own man. I am my own woman. God, you can make suggestions to me on how to live my life and then I'll judge them and if I agree with you, I'll adopt them. And if I disagree with you, I won't do them. Because I'm my own master, I'm my own king, I'm my own emperor, I'm not owed to anyone. And we ask God things like, who are you to tell me what to do with my money? Who are you to tell me to forgive that person? You don't know what they did to me. Who are you to tell me what to, what to do or what not to do with my girlfriend? Do you know how outdated your ideas are? 
And so we hold back those areas of disagreement from God's rule. We hold them back simply because we disagree with them. And we hold them back because we believe that we are still the rulers of our own lives. And so this is where it is important for us to be reminded once again that we don't offer specific pieces of our lives to God. We offer our whole lives, our very selves to God. We don't offer the things we do, the things we say, the things we have. We offer who we are. And from that flows the things we do, the things we say, the things we have. Why? Because we're made in his image. And so we, in our wholeness, are owed to him. So what does that mean then? What does it mean to render unto God what is God's? It means that there has to be that point of surrender in our lives in which we say, Lord, I am yours. I was my own man, answerable only to myself, but now I am yours. I give you everything that I am. And while rendering to God what is God's begins with a point of surrender, it continues with the same daily surrender throughout our lives. It entails not hanging on to ourselves and asking, okay, God, what else do I have to give you? Do I also have to give my tax, for instance? But entails asking, what else can I give? What else can I give? And we give ourselves to the Lord with cheerfulness, right? Not with compulsion or reluctance, just like Paul said. And we give ourselves because we're made in his image, and image equals ownership. We give our whole selves to God. We render to God what is God's. Okay, so here's where the 21st century lens drops over our eyes, I think. We read this as, the best way to do this for Christians is to be a submissive people, to give yourself to God, and to live your life to God's glory. But that's not it. Okay, that's wrong. What Jesus is saying is not this is what's right for Christians. He's saying this is what's right for everyone. Whether you're a Christ follower or an atheist or a Muslim or a Buddhist, this is what is right for your life. This is what all of our lives ought to be spent on, the one and only God over everything, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying it is right for everyone to spend their lives on God Almighty to live to his glory, to surrender everything that they have to him. Everyone, not just Christians, everyone. It's wrong to live for anything else. And we hate this. This language makes us squirm because we think, but who am I to tell anyone else how to live their lives? And the answer is, you're no one. <laughs> I'm no one. I have no authority to tell anyone how to live their lives. Because I'm not saying that this is how people should live because I think this is a good concept. I'm saying it's right for every single person on earth to render their lives to God because Jesus said it. That's what the text is about. And if God is the creator and ruler of all things, like we said right at the beginning, then this is not just a passage about the purpose of Christians, but about the purpose of all people. Why is it right? for every single human being to render their lives to God. Because every single person bears the image of God, everyone. And if you bear the image of God, then just like that denarius, the image shows the ownership. We bear his image, so we're owed to him. 
render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. That's right. This is for everyone, not just for Christians. So what have we seen today? Well, we've seen that on the surface of this text, Jesus says, pay our taxes because we owe them. And on a level deeper than that, we've seen that image equals ownership. And then deeper than that, we've seen that we ourselves are what we render to God. And so if you're a Christ follower this evening, I would call you to take a good hard look at your life. That's been the challenge to me over the last while as I've sat with this text. I need to think about my life. I need to audit my life and ask myself, are there specific aspects of my life in, w- in which I am keeping or withholding things from God? Do I care very strongly about certain aspects of my life and very little about others? Would I be happy if someone copied me in every single area of my life for 24 hours, or is there something I'd want them to change? And we, we can ask God to convict us of those things, to help us to see those things clearly. And we can ask again for God to help us to surrender all of our beings to Him. And if you aren't a Christ follower, have you ever wondered about the purpose of your life, about the meaning of your life? Have you ever wondered to yourself, why am I here? Well, this is it. This is the purpose of your life, to know Christ, to live for Him, to receive all the riches of His grace his love, his goodness. It's to surrender to his rule in your life and to receive all the goodness that comes with that. If you don't know Jesus and you feel purposeless or that your life is without meaning, then I hope that this evening you can see that your life is not without purpose. Now, if you're not a Christ follower today, then I want to say that you are made in the image of God. And because of that, your life's purpose and meaning is to live for him. And if you give your life to Jesus today, you will discover the very thing that you've been looking for as you live out the purpose for which you and all of us have been made. And finally, lest we think that God's call to us is a call to be poorer, to give up more and gain nothing, to sacrifice for no reward, to pay with no return, to become unhappy, stingy, and miserly, then let me share with you the final image in today's text. The denarius bears the image of Caesar, yet it's an imperfect rendering of Caesar. We bear the image of God, we're an imperfect rendering of God. But the third image in this text is that of Christ, and he is a perfect rendering of that image. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, he is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Friends, at the end of a week, like we've just had, filled with pain and stress, we can set our eyes on the God above all of this. Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God who gave himself absolutely for the Father's glory, withholding nothing. And because he is the perfect image of the invisible God, we know what our God is like. We know as people made in his image and owed to him that we are not made for a tyrant, purposed to live our lives for a God who oppresses us and extorts us like Caesar, who takes what we need to thrive and live full lives. We don't serve a God who is flawed and selfish and arrogant like us, who puffs himself up to be more than he is. Rather, we serve a God who is first over all things, who rules over every power and authority, who created everything, who holds it together, who did not withhold anything but gave everything, who reconciles us to himself and who now calls us into relationship with himself. So let me call the band up. As I say, I, I think the call from the scripture tonight is a reminder that we're made for our Father in heaven. And so let's do what Christ calls us to now. Let's bring our lives before him. Let's bring this process of rendering everything to God, who is the almighty, sovereign, and loving God. So let's pray, and then we'll go into worship. Father, we want to surrender ourselves to you this evening. We want to lay our lives down before you. God, we are self-centered and puffed up in so many ways. God, we do try and hold on to as much as we possibly can, giving you as little as we can. But God, you've given everything to us. You are generous and glorious and wonderful, and you've lavished your love on us. You've withheld nothing from us. You've blessed us with the riches of your grace. Father, I pray that we would hold nothing from you. God, I pray that you would bring to light this week, as we ponder these words, as we pray, as we bring our lives before you, those areas of our lives in which we withhold things from you, Father. In which we say, you can take everything, God, but not this. Father, would you show us those areas of our lives where we've become uh, blasé? I don't really care about that. And Father, for people who don't know you this evening, I just pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord Jesus, that we would see that a purposeful life starts in living for your glory and that that's not a call to become poorer, like giving away hard-earned money, but it's a call to become richer, to receive the riches of your grace, the glory of your presence, and ultimately to be with you, God. So Father, we love you, we worship you, we lift our hearts, our lives to you this evening. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.